beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, with Lord's Day 4, we are presented with a very essential question. Maybe it's not obvious right away, but the question that's presented here in this Lord's Day is, who is the Lord? Or to put it a little bit differently, what is the character of our God? Now, obviously, that is an important question. If you go back to Lord's Day 3, what you will see is that man was created that he might rightly know God. And we know from Scripture that the Lord has revealed himself both in his word and also in creation around us. But, of course, there is a problem. It's the problem that with the fall into sin, man's knowledge of God is polluted. And so as a result, people will often have their own perceptions about God. When they think about God, they do so in line with their own preferences, what they want God to be, who they want God to be. And in doing so, they pick, okay, I like this aspect, but I don't like that aspect. They choose what they like and what they want to ignore. And in doing so, fallen man tries to set himself up above God. What we see in the scriptures, the Lord reveals himself as far as needs to be known by us. And he does so throughout all the Bible, but there are certain passages that especially come to mind. And primarily, you can think about Exodus 34. There you have Moses, and this is after the sin of Israel with the golden calf. And God tells Moses to come up on the mountain of Mount Sinai, to take with him two stone tablets so that the law can be written again. And the Lord tells Moses, you are to come up alone. Well, then beginning in verse 5, Exodus 34, verse 5, we read, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. You see, brothers and sisters, it's in that passage that God reveals himself in the clearest way possible. It's in that passage God says, this is who I am. This is my character. And really, you can break it down to two things. God says, I am merciful. And I'm just. And these are the two things that come out in Lord's Day 4 of our confession as well. And so this afternoon, I may proclaim to you the word of God, doing so under the theme, the comforted believer confesses the justice and mercy of God. We consider two points. First, that his justice is fearful. Secondly, that his mercy gives confidence. Just a moment ago, we read through the words of Lord's Day 4. And when you look carefully... And you think about these words, you can almost understand why people like to pick and choose when it comes to God. 
You see, if we just talk about love, grace, mercy, and we leave it at that, no one's going to have a problem. Everyone likes those topics. But on the other hand, if we want to talk about justice, wrath, judgment, that makes people a little bit uncomfortable. It's not the case just for individual believers either. There are some churches, they try to avoid these discussions altogether. But it does lead to an interesting question. Why do such things cause that kind of discomfort? Why do some prefer to avoid the talk of God's justice, God's wrath? Why do some believers even try to cover these things up? And even could it be that we like to do so as well? All questions worthy of consideration. And people will present all kinds of explanations. But fundamentally, it comes down to one thing. You see, if we talk about God's justice or wrath or judgment, there has to be a reason for such things. And then one of two things must be true. Either God is fickle and unpredictable, or it's because of sin. And not just the sin of the other person out there, it's because of my sin. It becomes a personal matter in which each one must examine themselves. To confess the truth of God's justice is difficult for many because it means they can't avoid their sin. They have to own up to it. And when we look at ourselves and we look around us, that's not something many people like to do. It's much nicer to pretend that the problem lies with God, not with man. And so people try to avoid all these different topics, and they use a statement like, oh, why would God have a problem with me? I don't have a problem with God, so if God has a problem with me, then the fault has to be with God. And what happens is that they actually try to put man in charge of the discussion. Because if God does have a problem, then they say the fault must be with him, not me. I don't have a problem with God. And that's actually the approach you see here in Lord's Day 4. Question 9. Is God doing man an injustice by requiring of man what he cannot do? Where do things start there? It starts with man. And that's why the answer is so forthright. God, starting, there's the right starting point. God created man that he was able to do it. Man fell from such a state on his own accord. And when you look at this first question and answer of Lord's Day 4, it almost seems like a repetition of Lord's Day 3. Back in that Lord's Day, there's also talk about how things began at creation, our fall through our first parents. When you look closely, you see there's a slight difference between Lord's Day 3 and Lord's Day 4. In Lord's Day 3, the focus is on the depravity that came as a result of the fall. In Lord's Day 4 focuses on guilt as a result of the fall. And here in our confession, the church makes it clear that when it comes to guilt, it lies entirely with us. You see this clearly when you break down some of the language in answer nine. There's a few phrases in particular. 
It talks about the instigation of the devil. Catechism doesn't present this so that people have an excuse. It's not given so that we can say the devil made me do it. That is included in our confession because it highlights our guilt. For it shows who man chose to listen to in the beginning. Man chose to listen to the subtleties of the serpent rather than the word of the living God. And furthermore, answer 9 talks about deliberate disobedience. In other words, with the fall into sin, this was not a decision made in ignorance. You see it from the passage in Scripture where we have these things recorded. Genesis 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. It comes out there. This is not just a quick decision made without thought. She's analyzing what's happening. She saw that the tree was good for food. She saw it was a delight to the eyes. She saw it was to be desired to make one wise. She's thinking about these things. And so she reached out her hand, took of its fruit, and ate. And Adam also ate. And finally, man robbed himself and his descendants. Those are some interesting words when you think about them. Man robbed himself. Because how does a person rob himself? The best illustration is to look at a parable told by the Lord Jesus, which you find in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. There you have a son. He demands and he receives his inheritance early. And he goes out and he wastes it. He uses it frivolously, spending it on pleasure and good company. And in the end, he has nothing. To rob oneself. It shows the sheer folly of sin. It shows the sheer folly of man with the fall into sin. Well, there you have the reason for God's justice. Because God's justice means that he is faithful to the word which he has spoken. It goes right back to Genesis 2, verse 17. The Lord said to Adam and Eve, the day you eat from that tree, you will die. Sin has consequences. God made that clear right from the very beginning, and it's something consistently shown throughout the scriptures. God says, you disobey there's going to be consequences. Israel, before they went into the land of Canaan, the Lord laid out for them, if you live in submission to my commandments, if you obey me, here's all the blessings you're going to experience. But he also said, if you disobey, if you're unfaithful to me, if you choose other gods, here's all the curses for disobedience that are going to fall on you. The Lord does not hide from the fact that when people sin, it leads to his wrath. It leads to his justice. And nothing ever changes on that point. In that sense, the justice of God is also a fearful thing. The passage we read from Hebrews 10 closed with that very statement. Beginning in verse 30. 
For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Listen to this. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. When you read through scripture, there's so many illustrations that show that God's wrath is truly terrifying. Just to give one example, Nahum 1 verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Now some might say, okay, well that's the God of the Old Testament. God of the New Testament is different. That's not the case, because Romans 1 verse 18 we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God doesn't change. But then there's also the ultimate expression of God's wrath. And yes, we're talking here about hell. In our confession, answer 10, God punishes sin by a just judgment both now and eternally. Answer 11, sins committed against the most high majesty of God must be punished with the most severe, that is, everlasting punishment of body and soul. Our confession doesn't hide from hell. But if we're honest, it's a topic that many do like to avoid. It's not topic for casual conversation or for discussion at the table normally. But if you read through scripture, you might be surprised who talked about hell the most. No one taught about hell more than Jesus Christ. Just to give you some indications of what he said, in Matthew 13 verse 42, he speaks about the fiery furnace with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, verse 46, he talks about eternal punishment. Luke 16, you have the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Hell is described as a place of suffering, a place of torment. It's confirmed by what we read in Revelation 14, verse 11. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. And much more could be said. The Lord Jesus says, it's the place where the worm does not die, the fire is not quenched. But by now, brothers and sisters, it should be very clear, God's justice against sin is fearful. The Lord in his perfect justice cannot and does not ignore sin. He can't stand the sight of it. His eyes are too pure to even look on it. You read that in Habakkuk 2. He punishes sin now. He punishes sin eternally. And what that means is this. It's not for believers to pick and choose whether or not to talk about such things. It's not for the church to try and sweep these things under the rug, to treat it as our little secret that we don't want to talk about. Because God in his word makes it clear that he is a just and holy God. And that his justice does require the ultimate punishment upon sin. 
And that is something for each one to take very seriously. It's true for us, even though we may have heard about these things multiple times. Because consider what we read in Hebrews 10, verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Those are hard words. Those are strong words. What do they mean? We go on sinning deliberately. Refers to doing something willfully, willingly. It's defiantly rebelling against God, not caring, not being concerned about it. It's playing fast and loose with his justice. They're words to which we must pay attention. Because for many of us, we have received knowledge of the truth. We've heard the gospel of salvation, the good news of Jesus Christ. We've heard about his sacrifice on the cross. And often the question comes down to this. What does that mean to you? It's a question that has to be answered by everyone because there's consequences for each response. There are some who will openly say, no thanks, not for me. There are some who will say the right things, but show by their walk of life that they actually don't want that cross. There are some who say the right things, but act as though, well, God's merciful, so his justice is something we don't have to worry about. Scripture and confessions make it clear that's not the way things work. Yes, God is merciful. We'll deal with that in our second point shortly. But God is also just, and his justice demands that sin be punished. God does not ignore sin. God does not pretend that sin never happened. So where does that leave us? Well, so far, it doesn't exactly give us a lot of reason for hope. But then we have to remember, who is the one here in the catechism confessing the truth of God's justice? It's the one who's saying, I know how great my sins and misery are. It's the one who's confessed earlier, I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's the one who can say, I know that God is just, but I know he's also merciful. And that is what gives the believer reason for confidence, our second point. When you look at our confession, you might notice something interesting. You see, answer 11 mentions the truth of God's mercy, but that's where it stops. God's mercy is not explained here. To be fair, it will be explained in the next section of the catechism, the whole section on deliverance. But the truth is, the fact that God's mercy is brought up here is indeed something profound. Now, when it comes to justice and mercy, 
we actually do like both things. We're just very inconsistent about them. Everyone will acknowledge that there's a need for justice. But everyone prefers that they receive mercy. Give an example. We know that police have the responsibility to uphold the laws of the land. Nobody has a problem with that. We also have no trouble when someone else gets caught speeding and they get a ticket for it. But when we get caught speeding, well, we much prefer the warning rather than the ticket. You see, for sinful man, mercy and justice don't seem to work together. The one always seems to cancel the other out. To go back to that example, if you receive a warning when you're pulled over, justice hasn't actually been followed. If the ticket is given, you'll say that the officer hasn't been merciful. But you can take this a bit further because man's standard of justice isn't consistent either. It's always shifting. It's always changing. You have that officer who might knock the ticket down a few kilometers, and so you don't have to pay the full, pay the full fine. You have laws that change based on human behavior. When the majority does something, it becomes decriminalized, and the guilty get pardoned. So with all this in mind, question 11 makes a great deal of sense. How can God be truly merciful if he is also just at the same time? And for the comforted believer, they have every reason to ask this question, not out of doubt, but to ask this question with a great deal of confidence. Because what you see, brothers and sisters, is that there's one person, there's one time where that justice of God and that mercy of God fully embraced, and that is in Jesus Christ and his suffering and death on the cross. That's why it's helpful that we read Article 20 of the Belgian Confession, an article titled, The Justice and Mercy of God in Christ. And there we confess that Christ was sent to make satisfaction to bear the punishment of sin by his most bitter passion and death. On that cross at Golgotha, God manifested his justice. He poured out the full weight of his wrath against sin. He caused his own beloved son to experience the agony and torment even of hell. Think of those three hours of terrible darkness. There's where you have the deepest suffering of our Savior, a suffering hidden from the eyes of all, so terrible it was. And it was at that time that our perfectly just and perfectly merciful God laid every bit of our sin and iniquity upon our blessed Savior. Make no mistake, God did not compromise his justice in even the slightest way. Jesus Christ did not get off with the simple warning. The punishment required for sin that was not lessened in any way, nor was the horror of sin taken away or the punishment minimized. Christ Jesus experienced the full weight of God's justice. And therefore, considering everything that was presented in the first point, we can indeed say, the justice of God is indeed fearful. It is very real. But it has been fully borne by the Savior whom God provided.
And it's through that gift of the Savior, God shows he is indeed merciful. He's just because he remained consistent. He remained faithful to his word, including the curses for disobedience. But he's merciful because he provides one to bear all such things in our place. He's merciful. Now, how would you define mercy? According to one dictionary, mercy is compassionate or kindly forbearance shown toward an offender, an enemy, or other person in one's power. It is compassion, pity, or benevolence. The strength of that def- definition is that it indicates the one receiving mercy, they're in a position of being weak. They're completely helpless. Well, isn't that us because of sin? After the fall, what were we left with? By ourselves, things were hopeless. Deservedly subject to God's justice and wrath and punishment. And God shows he's merciful because he shows compassion to us. We didn't deserve it in any way, and yet God showed it. God shows he's merciful because we had offended him by our sin. And yet he says, now I provide for you the way of forgiveness. God shows he's merciful because by nature we were his enemies, Romans 5. And yet he says, here's the way of reconciliation. Through faith in my Son. And thus it is fair for us to say there are two things that the comforted believer cannot fully comprehend. In the first place, they cannot fully grasp the wrath of God against sin. Moses even asked that question in Psalm 90, verse 11 Who considers your wrath and the anger? That you have. But the second thing the believer can never fully comprehend is how deep, how amazing, how rich God's mercy is to us in Jesus Christ, His Son. God is just, He's merciful as well. He punishes sin. Yet he forgives sin. He remains true to what he says in Isaiah 1 verse 27. That Zion shall be redeemed by justice. And how he revealed himself in Exodus 34 to Moses. And how he reveals himself still to us today. It all comes together. In the person and work. Of Jesus Christ. It's summarized beautifully for us in the confessions. Article 20 of the Belgian confession. Out of a most perfect love. He gave his son to die for us and he raised him for our justification that through him we might obtain immortality and life eternal. There's also those so well-known and treasured words of Lord's Day 1 where we say, I belong to Jesus Christ and he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. It is a rich and beautiful confession One that we cannot ever get enough of. 
But then it raises a question. What does that mean to you? How does that shape your life? And it is important that we consider such things. Because the danger arises that we think about God's mercy, but not about his justice anymore. And what that means is that we fall into a trap where we easily take God's mercy for granted. We think of it as cheap. We ignore the tremendous cost at which it came. And it shows in such an attitude where we're not engaged in the battle against sin. Think of it for yourself, brothers and sisters. How often doesn't the thought cross our mind? You know what? I can sin here. I can fall here because God's going to forgive me anyways. I can do what I want. Christ died for me. It's all good. Most of us would never dare say the words because we know better. But don't the thoughts cross our mind? And doesn't our life at times demonstrate that very pattern of thinking? That's why it's necessary for us to focus on God's justice, to openly confess it, to openly speak about it, not just God's mercy. That's why the church must continue to proclaim the truth that God does in fact hate sin. That's why we teach God is terribly angry with our original sin as well as our actual sins. Because it is human nature that we do think lightly about such things, that we do take God's grace and salvation for granted But brothers and sisters, it doesn't work that way. Think about God's justice. Think about what your Savior, Jesus Christ, endured as he hung on the cross, as he bore that weight of God's wrath, as he suffered the agony of hell. And then remember, it was also your sin that put him there. When you think about things that way, how can we think lightly about sin? How can we think lightly about God's mercy? There's only one thing to do, and that's to fall on our knees at the foot of the cross, to confess our sin, to seek forgiveness, but to do so confidently knowing that because of God's mercy for us in Jesus Christ, that forgiveness of sins is not just a nice idea, but it is something very, very real, which is important for us to note, because something, it is something that many will struggle with over the course of their life, especially as some get older. They think about their sins that they've committed whether that's their sin of the present or the sin of the past in their youth. And then the questions of Psalm 77 start to get very real. We sang of those questions earlier. Here they are from Scripture. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Have you ever thought about those questions for yourself? Or had them cross your mind? 
by directing our eyes of faith to the cross, the comforted believer receives the answers they need. By focusing on the cross of Jesus Christ, they are assured that the Lord's steadfast love has not ceased, that he has not forgotten to be gracious, that in anger his, that his anger has not shut up his compassion, but rather he freely gives his love. He freely gives his grace. He pours them out upon those who believe in Jesus Christ as the one who died for their sins. And so it's by focusing every bit of our attention on the Son of God, that's how we're given confidence. And that's what comes out in that passage we read together from Hebrews 10. It speaks about having confidence by the blood of Jesus. Confidence to enter the most holy places through the curtain that is his flesh. To draw near to God. Not hesitantly. Not with doubt. But to draw near in full assurance of faith. To appear here this afternoon in his presence. To do so with joy and not with trembling. To draw near before God in prayer. Not hesitantly. But eagerly. Knowing that that is the way opened for you through Jesus Christ. By asking that question, but is God not also merciful? It's not about creating doubt in the heart of the believer. It's about truly having them live and die in the joy of the comfort that, yes, I belong to my faithful Savior. He has fully paid for all my sins. It's about having us know just how rich we are through his bloodshed on the cross. How he has borne God's perfect, fearful justice in our place. It's through Christ, the believer may have complete confidence that yes, everything is good. They will forever know the love and mercy of God. They will live eternally in the kingdom of God. For certainly, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But, it is a most comforting thing to be embraced in the tender arms of our loving Savior. Amen.